It's FAQ NYC Offcycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, The City, steps back to take a different and deeper look into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Katie Honan, co-host of The Pod and senior reporter at The City, here with Alex Lin, a contributor to The Pod and its founding executive producer. Today, we will talk about her powerful and heartbreaking New York Magazine essay, I lost my brother twice, first to schizophrenia, then forever to the city. There's a lot to discuss, but first, here's a brief programming note. FAQ NYC is now a part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to serving the people of New York. Our hard-hitting local news is powered by listeners and readers like you. Now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to The City will be doubled. Head to thecity.nyc slash give to donate today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Alex, first, uh, thank you so much for joining me here. And, and most importantly, thank you for sharing your brother Zach's story with us and readers. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, it was uh, an intense thing to write, but I thought I've wanted to write about it for a long time. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, I think it's incredibly timely, which we'll get into later with Mayor Adams' um, mental health initiative announcement. But, you know, first off, um, you wrote about your brother's act of schizophrenia, the disease that would then lead to his death. Uh, but I first wanted to ask you about his life. He was your big brother, seven years older. Can you tell us some of your earliest memories of him? Well, my parents were kind of on and off until I was born. And then they were on again. And they lived in different apartments around the village and around Brooklyn. So they were constantly like moving around. And my brother grew up with his mom in Park Slope. And he would always come over to our house. I would go over to his house. And he was just like a riot. You know, he was really sharp. He was always really funny. He made people laugh. Uh, we made a bunch of home movies together where my dad would be the villain back on VHS where everything looked really blurry and grainy. And um, he was always in, you know, he was a kid in the 90s. He was a white kid in Park Slope in the 90s in love with early 90s hip-hop, um, late 80s, early 90s hip-hop. He loved comic books. He had huge collections. He did bags and boards for every single one of them. Um, his favorite was Spider-Man, but he was always very, very interested in the more heady, like, Batman, DC stuff. Yeah. Um, he was just, like, like kind of a typical kid. Yeah. So, you know, and you, and you talk a lot about that in the piece, and then you, you talk about... Um, his first year away at college, and that was when he was first brought to an emergency room for having intrusive thoughts. Um, and I, he was at Binghamton, correct? He was originally, he did one year in Connecticut, University oh, okay, of sorry. Connecticut. And then, um, yeah, and then he, nobody's sure how he got there still to this day. Did he bring himself in? Did a counselor bring him in? Did someone suggest it? All his mom knows is that she got a call, Ma, hey, Ma, I'm, like, in the hospital. Um, and he was having intrusive thoughts, just kind of paranoid, uneasy. Uh, he wasn't a big drug kid. Maybe he smoked weed. Maybe he drank a little in high school. But he wasn't, like, 
you know, so it was out of character. He didn't do speed. He didn't do coke. You know, yeah. it would have been very out of character for him to just be ill at ease this way. Um, so he ended up in that hospital and my dad drove up and got him. And then I I think he he just needed some time after that first one. And from what his mom says, you know, after the first time, you're always hoping maybe this was just like he's stressed out. Maybe this is early adulthood. Maybe this is panic attacks. Maybe this is just something that that can be worked through. Yeah. But, you know, as you write, this was just the sort of introduction um, to his long journey uh, interacting with New York City's mental health institutions. And you wrote, you know, in time, we knew every hospital with a decent psych ward in the city. Creedmoor in Queens, Bellevue, Beth Israel, if it had the beds, Harlem Metropolitan, Jamaica, St. Vincent's, Long Island Jewish Hospital, and Staten Island University Hospital. Now, was this your family's first introduction to mental health services in New York City? And I mean, what was that? I know you were on the young side, but I'm sure you were exposed to to what that was like trying to help your brother. So... After my brother got back from Connecticut, he wanted to go back to school. He got into Binghamton. He went up to Binghamton. Um, That's when I write about how, you know, his mother was like, that next breakdown was really full-blown. So for the next few months, they were working with hospitals up in Binghamton. Mm -hmm. And um, there's an interesting story that when they were trying to get him transferred somewhere closer to where my father lived in Rockland County at that point, uh, they, my dad almost had to like jump across the table, threaten a guy. He didn't know what to do. This is where he started understanding that um, you had to fight for everything, even a transfer that was better for their mental health, anything like that. But this was their... This was not their first rodeo. This is not my dad's first rodeo with mental health services. So my mom is bipolar one. It also has elements to it that is paran- uh, that has some paranoia, some schizoaffective uh, disorders. Um, you can have delusions. You can have hallucinations. Um, the key differences is are that there's a lot more bipolar ones that are functional. Um, and there are drugs that are known to work for a large amount of people with bipolar one, where that's really not so much the case uh, with schizophrenia. So my mom uh, had struggled with mental illness pretty much her whole life since before I was born. And when my mom and dad separated and I lived with her from a very young age, it kind of became my responsibility if she was exhibiting odd behavior to figure out what to do with that. Yeah. Um, and that's tough when you're a teenager. Just it's the labyrinth of things, the maze uh, is staggering. And then you get to this point after the second or the third time where if you're younger than 18, you have to time it. You have to wait for someone to become so delusional mm. that the EMTs, like the police, know right away that there's no there's no denying this. They have to take this person to a hospital. The tricky thing is that with a lot of people, maybe they could take them to, if they were being violent with their family, they could take them to a jail cell and there starts an entire process that is really damaging. So if a family member isn't present and doesn't know what they're doing, that first initial call to 911 can be um, 
you know, can really affect the next few years of their life. For me, I was lucky enough to kind of have neighborhood cops mm. that sort of knew my building. And even if they didn't know me or my mom, they knew that there were a lot of like old school Italians in the building. And uh, I think they were a little more gentle with us also because, you know, we're white and in Greenwich Village. And um, so that allowed us a bit of a bit more safety. Uh, but I remember getting into large arguments, you know, with EMTs to allow me to ride to the hospital in the ambulance because I had no other alternate mode of transportation at 2 a.m. Uh, once you get there, just trying to fight for them not to completely shoot someone up on Halidol, like off the bat, because, you know, make sure this person is not violent. They do not need this kind of medication. Mm -hmm. uh, you had Brian Stetson on the uh, Stet on the show recently who clarified a bit that the only way you can give people involuntary medication is if they are like a real imminent violent threat, which my 115-pound mother was not. But I had to announce that to make sure people would know someone's watching so they can't just sedate you. Um, there were these just these little tricks and my mom primarily went to St. Vincent's, mm -hmm. which was a private hospital that closed um, in the great, you know, closing and consolidation nightmare of the late 90s and early 2000s that happened in New York. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue. You know, um, what you said you saw with your brother and obviously with your mom and, and a lot of other people experiencing mental illness, his schizophrenia diagnosis ran parallel to the decline of mental health resources in New York City. Um, and like you said, he's also an example later on in life. He was someone who was mentally ill and needed services, but he wasn't homeless and living on the street. So do you want to talk a little bit about what the the lack of beds, the shortage of services, what that looks like for someone who needs the help, you know, what it was like in your brother's case and for your family's case in trying to really fight to get him the services he needs? So I just want to say in my years with uh, living with my mom with bipolar one and my brother who had schizophrenia, visiting him in hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, I reached out for resources from from organizations like NAMI. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you really, you get to connect with a lot of other families and other people who have family members that they have to take care of or watch out for. I had a friend in high school whose brother was also schizophrenic. She was my age. Um, her brother ended up in jail after jail after jail, prison after prison, and he has a much different... Uh, his schizophrenia presented differently than Zach's and more violently. So I just want to say that, like, yeah, there's a lot of people struggling with mental illness who are not homeless, but they can become homeless uh, pretty quickly when they when their families are or don't know what to do. They're not sure whether to take them to a hospital. They're not sure if this is schizophrenia or mental illness. Um, a lot of times they get kicked out of the house, or a lot of times their family they just become estranged. They just like leave one day, and their family members are working full time. They try to look for them, and a lot of these people just get lost. Um, the executive director of NAMI NYC, Matt Kuddish, uh, I talked to him about a year and a half ago, uh, and Kimberly Blair, and they were talking about how, you know, in the newspaper, 
in the tabloids on the po- okay on the cover of the post you see like homeless man vagrant de- homeless deviant homeless deviant vagrant with a record but a lot of these men became homeless because of the lack of community resources because their families didn't have any way to navigate the system because their first experience with the hospital was really exclusionary and they gave them no information and then you know maybe their kid went to jail a couple times they enter like a shelter system so a lot of these people that end up on the front page are yes homeless and yes do have a record but a lot of that happened because of that lack of early intervention um if that if that makes sense yeah no definitely so you know for instance i mean even uh roberto lopez who the young man who killed a lot of people on the subway. I'm not sure. I forget how many um, with a knife. He was 21 years old. And from all the interviews with his sister, she said that he was pretty baseline. He had been in and out of the shelter system, but that his brother, he was living with his brothers in the Bronx and they kicked him out at some point because they couldn't, they didn't know how to deal with the erratic behavior. Um, a friend of mine who I interviewed a long time ago, we then became friends, Issa Ibrahim, was untreated in Jamaica, Queens. And at 18, he accidentally killed his mom. Um, he had told me in an interview that I did for the Daily Beast that he um, just was under a delusion that she had been possessed by demons. And long story short, he had tried to excise her and he sat on her sternum. Um, we've had him on the show and he had untreated. He was 18. And uh, he spent the next 20 years of his life in Creedmoor, psychiatric. There's like, there's a, a pretty common story that goes like untreated mental illness between the ages of 17 and, and 20, um, a misunderstanding, and incarceration, you know, or just completely non-treatment and then a delusion that leads to violence. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, um, with Mayor Adams's new initiative to push more severely mentally ill people into hospitals, with or without their consent, obviously we spoke with Brian Stanton a few weeks ago, um, an expert in the field, and he works for the mayor in terms of establishing this program. I just want to ask you, you know, what are your concerns with this type of program? And then we can talk a little bit. I know you've expressed some concerns with assisted outpatient treatment as well. So we'll just start with your kind of initial reaction to this program. Well, I mean, I don't want to be glib, but most people who read the very rudimentary uh, conflict, you know, about, oh, no, they're going to start involuntarily uh, putting people in mental institutions. I mean, this isn't this this isn't a lot different from what we've seen before. I mean, with my mom, sometimes I would have to lie. If she would, if if I thought that the police or the EMTs were busy that night, and just felt like being like she's fine, but I knew I had been watching her for the last four days descend into mm-hmm. madness, I knew I had to say she said she wanted to kill herself, and I would just I was six I had no options, you know, so I would say that, and they would be like, okay, and that at that point they have to at least take her in to be assessed in the hospital. Um, And what what interests me is the language around this, where the expansion of 
um, the danger to oneself, the the broadening of that to hygiene, um, and allowing law enforcement to broaden their definition of people that they're allowed to take to a hospital for assessment. So what I think that this sounds like is that it's specifically for homeless people, which is specifically seems are the most visible. And it seems to be what people refer to almost as a blight, mentally ill, homeless people. And this is what is, this is what is most visible in our city right now. And it's been more and more so. The Nurses Association of New York warned us about this in 2020, that we were coming to like a real crisis point. And what it seems like to me is that we're dealing with the most visible mentally ill first. And I understand the impetus to do that. I'm not I'm not like a rube. I get it. You know, the mayor has to deal with optics. And and I don't think it's it's out of malice. Um, but I do think that what it ignores is the mammoth task that's like ahead for actually dealing with the mentally ill. So this doesn't keep happening again and again. You can have all of the homeless people in New York assessed. They created wellness beds. Where are those beds? Do they then... Is it more like a, a conglomerate shelter? Because there's not the hospital beds for it, and there's not the supportive housing yet, even though they did add 2,000 units, I think, back in like 2019, and there was supposed to be 2,000 more units coming up, according to de Blasio's temporary deputy of, of mental health. There was supposed to be 2,000 more units coming for 2024. I don't know where that is under the Adams administration. But like, it doesn't just have to do with assessing homeless people. It has to do with after they get out of the hospital, after those 72 hours or two weeks, where do they go? What resources do they have? Do they have a treatment plan? Um, he also brings up that more people will be screened, screened for Kendra's laws. And Kendra's laws and AOT is just not as robust as people think it is. It's a court order. It's more used from sources I have that actually work at AOT. It's more used as a threat. Like, listen, if you if we keep seeing you back here, we're going to file for AOT, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if someone doesn't take their medication, like after a while, if they don't show up for their check-ins, like a mobile crisis team maybe goes to see their last residence. If they're not there, they get lost. If they are there or they know that they're acting kind of wild, they're a danger to themselves or others, then after you know, we're talking after weeks, occasionally a mobile crisis team can work with the sheriff's office to detain someone and bring them to a hospital. So this isn't like Keystone cops jump in a car when like Zach doesn't take his meds and goes and gets him and brings him to the loving, warm arms of like the hospital staff. That's a fantasy. What I'm saying is that I don't think Mayor Adam's plan is enough and I think it really needs to start with early intervention and it, and then it needs to end with housing. And there's some things that just aren't in his control. I I mean, this is going to get in the weeds, but really briefly, when nationwide deinstitutionalization happened and Willowbrook and Pennhurst folded, giant institutions that were created in a bygone era where people were horribly abused, they were like, listen, people <clears throat> are born with mental illness. They can't do anything about it. We can't just, in, you know, we can't just keep them uh, from a young age forever and ever. It's not constitutional. 
But then you have, so that's happening at the same time that like Reagan, Bush, and Clinton are draining welfare services and social services. And so the community support and the housing and everything that was needed to hold people um, and support them so that they wouldn't be locked up in institutions for the rest of their lives, those never materialized. And so now we're faced with this constant catching up. Plus the federal government cut funding to most states for institutional stays. So we had a problem. Most of our private hospitals stopped keeping people past 12 days Mm -hmm. once their funding was cut and Medicaid. And and the way New York dealt with this was they said, we're not going to reimburse after 12 days. And a lot of people need a lot more than 12 days. They need four weeks. They need whatever they need. So between funding being cut and beds being lost, which is a whole other story how that happened, we really have like the red bear resources. And if you commit a crime and you, you're you unlucky enough to get a, a arrested in Manhattan as opposed to Brooklyn, you, you know, each borough has a different diversion court for mental health. And widely it's known that Manhattan's was not very good at all. Alvin Bragg did talk about using uh, funds to beef up the diversion court in, in Manhattan. Um, you know, I I have a lot of hope for his policies in that direction. But if you look at it, we're talking about the shelter system, housing, the state, the city, the Department of Mental Health and Hygiene. We're talking about law enforcement, fire department, NYPD. All of these things have to work in tandem. When has that ever happened? Like like a, a person living with mental illness touches so many of our different structures. And right now we just don't have a city that operates with a, in a spirit of like information sharing or working together through those different branches. Yeah. I do want to point out, I know this week uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg announced a $9 million initiative for voluntary mental health services as part of that, I know. But, you know, it seems so... Obviously, they work with the money that they have, but like you said, it's a mammoth problem. Um, I mean, do you think that this is something that should just be beefed up in all the boroughs and all, I mean, in all the counties with the DAs? And I guess, you know, also what other plans, you know, in this fantasy world, we can, for the purposes of this podcast, say in an ideal world, what treatments would there be? And and I know you said it starts with early intervention and ends with housing. So I guess, you know, in, in that fantasy, or the mayor now uses the term moonshot. So what is your moonshot wish for people who need these services? I think my moonshot for the city, my brother was, was never arrested. I think he was like detained once, but he wasn't. I think keeping young schizophrenic people out of jail is paramount. And I and so one of my major criticisms is that Mayor Adams says that there will be training and that law enforcement will will know what to do. And what I think is really worrisome about that is that we've seen in the past a lack of transparency and accountability when new programs happen. Mm-hmm. And unless like the public and the media know what it what is the protocol. Why why can't we also know the protocol and hold that law enforcement accountable to follow that protocol? Um, why there isn't sort of a branch 
uh, of, of EMTs that work also with the police specifically. They've tried a bunch of different configurations under the de Blasio administration. Be Heard was the fire department and health and hospitals. Um, Thrive was like pretty much a phone number to nowhere. Sorry, I mean, but yes, uh, there was a program in the early 2000s where police were paired with social workers that kind of went nowhere because there was no oversight or honestly... I'm not sure what happened to that. Greg B. Smith, who works with you guys, yeah. tracked that really, really well and reported on it. But I think keeping essentially like scared children out of jail because what you see is a young person, usually a young man, and usually a young man whose parents are not super wealthy and you get a lot of young men um, of color. And a police officer has a decision to make. Do I take this person who seems a little nuts or an EDP, emotionally disturbed person, to a hospital or do I take them to the precinct? And that choice right there could affect the rest of their life. They take them to a hospital. There's a chance they get stabilized. Their their family gets involved and there's a lot more resources through a hospital, although not much. They go to a jail you know, maybe they catch another charge. Maybe they hit, attack a police officer. They get sent to Rikers. And then all of those paranoid thoughts, all of those delusions come true because people are hitting you, holding you down. Um, they get out of jail. They barely have a treatment plan. A lot of schizophrenics, the reason why they have, they've done time multiple, uh, multiple stints is because they haven't been able to follow up with a parole officer because they haven't had a home or they don't keep it straight. And the difference and the life trajectory of someone who started their really hard road with schizophrenia, you know, in in jails and with law enforcement as opposed to hospitals, the, the quality of life difference is immense. Now, you can say, oh, well, your brother killed himself anyway. Sure, but the quality of his life and his ability was so much different than my friend's brother who went to jail when he went, you know, the first time when he was like 19. Yeah. So I do want to talk about that, you know, and again, you get in all into all of this in the piece, but, um, you know, your brother committed suicide on February 21st, 2013. Um, he jumped in front of a train at the Briarwood of Anwick station uh, in Queens. Um, you know, and I often think you posted something, I believe in the anniversary of his death on social media, or I think on Instagram. And it said, you know, Remember when you see someone acting erratically or whether it's on the street or whatever, that's someone's brother. And that's just struck me because I think we so often forget you see people on the street, you know, whether it's an extreme mental illness or something, and you forget the the, the kind of deep humanity that's there, right? That's someone's loved one. That's that's a person at the end of the day who's dealing with a severe illness. And and as you point out, you know, he your brother dealt with it for 20 years. And you, you know, you wrote that um you know, I suspected that if any of us had to live for one moment with his illness, we would all be running for the nearest train station. And then you later write his fortitude and the fortitude of those similarly afflicted inspired in me a sense of awe. So I just wanted to talk a little bit, you know, have you talk more about um, what we as New Yorkers, right, to ask for compassion for people, even if, you know, people sometimes are, if you're being harassed by someone or if you're afraid or if someone's threatening you or threatening violence. But I did want you to speak a little bit about that because 
um, everyone has the right to feel safe and be safe, um, even if someone is experienced and even if someone around us is experiencing a violent episode. But I guess the takeaway for our listeners of remembering that everyone here is a is a person too, and 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 that kind of and maybe more compassion and care, which the mayor's office has talked about, but that compassion and care for the people who who have these illnesses. So, you know, I also I wanted to. There's a, there's a lot of criticism when someone focuses on the humanity of mentally ill and violent mentally ill people because uh, a lot of people get angry that you're not recognizing that there are victims of yeah. these crimes. And so you do have to recognize that, right? You do have to recognize that there is a danger to delusion, Right. The Kendra's laws is, are named Kendra's laws for a reason because a young woman was pushed in front of a train by a young man who was suffering acute symptoms of schizophrenia, which happened to be delusion. And it's really hard. You know, I I don't go near the tracks, to be honest. I'm constantly afraid someone's gonna push me in. Is that, you know, trauma or nurture or nature? I don't know. But like when I I as a kid considered myself really tough. I don't give a shit. I'll I'll fight whoever comes up to me. But when I got pregnant, mm. that completely changed. Like I could not, I wasn't prepared I, uh, to be pregnant and to actually be vulnerable. Um, and I remember there was a young man in Washington Square Park. Now, you know, when you encounter a mentally ill person, you avoid eye contact because I don't want to be folded in to whatever possible narrative has been happening to them. Um, so I, I avoid eye contact. What that does to that person, that makes them invisible. Imagine if you just walked through the streets and everybody, everybody's eyes just diverted. You are invisible. They step over you. They step around you. They avoid eye contact with you. And so a lot of times that's necessary because people are afraid. I could not defend myself with a, I mean, I got big when I'm pregnant, so I couldn't <laughs> defend my giant pregnant belly, which I really wanted to defend. And I locked eyes with a guy in Washington Square Park who's clearly mentally ill. And he just looked at me and he started, he walked right over to me. Um, and he started like trying to get around my husband and like hit me. And I was just, uh, I didn't know what to do. I mean, Adam is very tall. So Adam wasn't like defending me, but he was just standing between. He was defending me, but he was, he didn't have to do much. Um, and I, I just yelled, help, I'm pregnant. Um, and, you know, someone pulled out their cell phone. And the, the problem is that no matter how nonviolent your loved one is or somebody is, you don't know what the narrative, where the narrative has brought them. Like, for instance, my brother was a comic fan and in his more lucid moments would talk to me about some of these delusions, him being probed by people sent by Jesus and then his mind being erased and him knowing he needed to go do something, defend people. And he had to fight someone he wasn't sure who. Was it all these people that would look and then quickly look away from him? So if you don't know what it, what's going on but what if you really thought that was true what if you thought you were like a secret marvel character and you're the only person that knows that aliens are coming but you really believe it i mean you really believe it yeah. what would you do like these people are a lot of times defending themselves you know you have the post running a, a cover of a guy with his tongue sticking out like he enjoyed just hurting somebody 
But I can tell you, most of the people who have ever hurt people under the acute symptoms of schizophrenia did not enjoy hurting that person. They were afraid. They were paranoid and they were afraid and they thought that those people were part of a larger thing that was coming to get them or coming to destroy the world or something like that. And it's really hard to sort that. And I understand that people are afraid. You go to Washington Square Park, you're afraid. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not an idiot. And I don't think this will solve everything. But I do think early intervention, early intervention, it's, it's all you can do. You get them at 18 to 25 with kindness and, and medication and showing things are possible and supportive services. They can move into a building, an apartment that has social workers dropping by in common areas. And I, you know, I don't have proof of this because honestly, they don't really try it. Cities don't invest the money. But I bet, I'd bet with everything I have, dollars of donuts, that we'd see a huge reduction in violent crime from the mentally ill, which, by the way, is a really small percentage of mentally ill people. Most of them, as I say in my articles, harm themselves or get harmed by others. Maybe they're in a delusion and they talk shit and people beat the shit out of them, or cops do, or they get the shit beat out of them in jail, or worse. I mean, the few that are severely mentally ill, they're the ones that make the cover. And that's a fact. And the ones that are in the doorways of expensive buildings in, in Midtown, they're the ones that a lot of public officials want to clear out so that they get moneyed votes. And, and that's also understandable. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of villains here except maybe George Pataki and the Burger Commission, who in 2005 decided on recommendations to make a huge uh, like sweeping of New York State hospitals where they consolidated and closed a, a ton. And I, I'll point out, too, um, because of that commission, it's it's one reason why when we had a deadly pandemic across New York City, the borough I live in, Queens, which is the second most populous in New York City, was completely overloaded because hospitals closed down. And, you know, it's why you continue to build housing, which is much, badly needed, right? In New York City, you need to build housing. You build it in, you know, how many 2,000 plus plan for Willits Point. Long Island City has exploded since 2005 in terms of housing, but there haven't been any more hospitals built. So this right. is all sort of, it is all, whether it's mental or physical health, when you don't have the services, that's why when shit really hit the fan with a deadly pandemic, nobody seemed to see coming. Um, you had people dying in hallways and in, you know, in waiting rooms. And that also is the sort of that crisis that we saw and got a ton of coverage deservedly because of how horrific it was. But that also seems to be the daily reality for so many people who need mental health services. Steven Berger gave a quote to David Brand um, during the pandemic, which, where he said, um, Basically, oh, it's not for lack of beds. It's for a mismanagement of beds. So Steven Berger, the, the head of the Berger Commission, who made all these recommendations back in 2005 and uh, who, you know, implemented them just as my brother was, you know, uh, you know, living with schizophrenia until 2013, he is still laboring under, in my opinion, the delusion that consolidating and closing hospitals was the right thing to do, and it's simply the mismanagement of everyone else that uh, that that we're suffering a, a lack of services, according to hospitals. 
Well, so I found that interesting too. Yeah. So Alex, uh, in your piece that was published last week by New York Magazine, you know, it starts off with this really powerful paragraph about when you found out your brother Zach had killed himself. Uh, your dad called and he told you, you know, it's really bad when they won't tell you on the phone. And then you write that there were only two possibilities. Zach had either jumped onto the tracks or he had pushed someone. And honestly, at that moment, I was praying for the latter because it would mean my brother was still alive. I want to hear from you a little bit about, um, you know, someone reading that might be, it might come off as a little jarring, but um, after experiencing what you've, what you've experienced, I want to hear from you about what what that whole experience is like for someone who has a loved one who's dealt with this for so long. You know, I got a lot of comments or I saw a lot of comments where people were like, she wished he pushed somebody. Well, that's creepy to stay, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you and could I, understand the spirit behind it. You know I, what was I, mean? like, I was like, yeah, it's almost like when you have to like scrap and fight for resources, you become super individualistic. And it's almost like when you live with someone with mental illness from the first time where you think maybe this is a one-off to when you know it's full-blown, you're, you're negotiating your hope so far down that eventually it's like maybe he pushed someone. Because where there's life, there's hope, right? There's hope for a new med cock. There's hope for a new doctor. There's hope. But like, yeah, yeah. It's almost like you have a moral compass that's a little off when you live with this stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do want to close and bring it back to your brother, Zach. Um, You know, and reading this, obviously, it's such a personal essay. But like you say, it, it. so many people in New York City are experiencing this in some way and, and across the country and the world, too, not just here. I, I guess I asked a little bit earlier in terms of what you would like to see, but um, what do you want people to take away from reading about your brother and your life and listening to this and hearing about also how you've personally you know, experienced it with your mom as well? But um, whether they themselves are experiencing it with a loved one or they maybe luckily have never had to go through this, as you say, the rodeo and, and and figuring out services. What what is that takeaway you want people to know about your brother and, and your family and, and your experience? Well, I think that I would like people to take away that there is help out there. Um, that I that you know you can talk with NAMI and uh and there is a way forward, but you need to be like. At the moment, you need to be really tough and you need to consolidate efforts with other families um, and to just find that support because it's so worth it. It's really worth it to find the support. It's worth it for the city as a whole. Um, But a lot of people are unable. I want to just end with the story of Malik Jackson, who died in January of 2021. He was called the naked man, gyrating, who hit himself on the third rail, basically uh, suffering acute symptoms of schizophrenia. He was naked in the train station. He pushed someone in. A very heroic man jumped into the tracks to save the person who was pushed. Malik jumped in after them. And while they escaped the train, he uh, electrocuted himself on the third rail. Malik Jackson was 35 years old. He had originally showed symptoms at 17 years old, and he went to jail over a misunderstanding of how much change was uh, supposed to, he was supposed to get back at a deli. Then he went to jail again because he missed a couple parole appointments um, and he had a parole violation. He also was introduced to drugs 
in his first time in jail. His mother worked in emergency services. She was very involved. He lived in a men's SRO, and that shelter actually, you know, their private security was busted for selling drugs. No police ever called Ethel Trammell. Um, they didn't know he had died. The, the New York Post, I guess, no reporters called her. Nobody figured the story needed more attention than just like the gyrating naked man who died. And he used to panhandle even though he had money. He liked smoking K2. He was really funny. He was incredibly smart, as I think a lot of schizophrenics are just like, part of me thinks they're just too smart for this world. But um, she called him her little snudge because when he was born, he was like so chubby. Um, he always came for dinner. And she said the last time she saw him, he, she knew he wasn't okay. She ha didn't know what happened to his court order, his AOT, because she thought it just lapsed. He no longer had to show up for his shot. And um, something, the way he sounded, she said, just made her hair stand up. He just said, Mom, I love you. And uh, she just knew that he was going to do something. And um, there's just eight, there's so many stories like that. We're everywhere. The children of the mentally ill, the mentally ill. Like at some point you have to absorb the monsters and stop thinking of them as monstrous. But you have to like realize they're a part of the city and stop stepping over them, which Eric Adams is preaching. Um, I just think, you know, he needs, he needs more robust solutions because the 72-hour stay, like nobody's being, yeah. The 72-hour thing was a lot of hoopla over nothing. It's just it just seems like it's specifically targeted to homeless, and we need just a wider, more robust initiative across all types across the whole city. That was a little rambly. I'm sorry. No, it was perfect. And I just for the people listening, NAMI is the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and we'll include when we when we publish this a lot of links for resources, anything else you suggest for help for people who you know need help for themselves or other people. But um, Alex, you know, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this because it's a personal story that actually affects everybody, whether they know it or not. So um, we appreciate you coming on and speaking with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research. And we are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at popula.com. Our host this episode was Katie Honan. Harry Siegel is our executive producer, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kamara. A special thank you to FAQ family Alex Brooklyn for sharing her family's story, and thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.